I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we derish chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Derish Chai Experiment, the show where we look at the culture that the Bible was written into to help us to understand what it means to us today. Now on the surface it might seem as if the book of Deuteronomy is unlike any other book of the Bible on the whole, and you'd be mostly correct in that assumption. Deuteronomy is quite fascinatingly unique. It is an ancient legal document. It's a treaty that was forged between Hashem and his people. Hashem described within it in the role of the suzerain and the people described in the role of his vassals. And while Deuteronomy is unique in the biblical canon in this way, it's not unique when compared to other documents of the sort that have been discovered and placed into the archaeological record. The sections of Deuteronomy, the, the preamble, prologue, laws, etc., they map perfectly onto this form of document and help us to better understand the purpose of Deuteronomy, how it works, and what it's saying to its audience. And so, all too often when we open the Bible, we expect the audience to be us. The Bible speaks to me, and the Bible was written for the benefit of the people of God, and I count myself as among the people of God. So I am obviously the audience that was intended when the book was first penned. And this sort of view gets us into a lot of trouble. Because while the Bible was written for us, and it was written to the people of all ages and cultures, the books of the Bible were not written to us. We were not the initial audience that this book was first given to. And recognizing this can take us further in our biblical study than we usually get when we assume that we are the primary audience. And it is this context of the original audience that we must always search out to help us to better understand what application we can pull from the biblical text. Because if we can understand what these texts meant to them, then we can better understand what they mean for us. And so the challenge arises. How did this ancient culture from halfway around the world and 3,500 years removed from us think? What did they understand that we don't? What assumptions did they bring with them into the text that are simply unstated because, well, they went without being said? And so in order to understand this book, we must look to the literature of the cultures that surround the Bible because they had the same audience. Okay, maybe not exactly the same audience, but an audience that's much closer than we could ever hope to be. And it is items like honor and shame that we've covered in the past that help us to better understand what's going on in some of these more confusing passages. It's things like patronage of the first century that can help us to understand the meaning of grace. It's a topic that I have not specifically covered at this point, but it's one that's vitally important to understanding the topic of grace as presented in the New Testament. Or words translated as faith being more connected to allegiance than to simple head knowledge. And for the next few weeks, this is what we're going to be doing. We're going to be exploring some of these topics that have been misunderstood for centuries because we have been relying on 12th and 16th century understanding of certain words and ideas rather than 
relying on 15th century BC to 1st century CE understandings of these ideas and topics. And it is the literature that came from the surrounding cultures that can help to inform us of just how to handle the text responsibly, and more importantly, how to apply the text responsibly. But in the end, it's not the literature that's outside of the Bible that will confirm or teach these ideas, but it is the text of the Bible itself that will confirm and bring us those last steps to understanding what is going on. And if we are paying attention to the sections of the Suzerain Vassal Treaty, this week begins the legal portions of the book of Deuteronomy, the laws that were given to this vassal nation to guide them. So that's where we're going to begin, with the law. It's a concept that we woefully misunderstand because of our own Greek-based Enlightenment culture, Western-centric, modern guilt and innocence value systems. Because of our lens, we are blinded from seeing the Torah as it was intended. So let's read Deuteronomy 5, 1-6-3, through 6, 3, and then discuss this concept of Torah versus law, and then what it means for us as a modern people. Deuteronomy 5, 1-6-3 And Moshe called to all Israel, and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the laws and the right rulings which I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and guard to do them. Hashem our Elohim made a covenant with us in Chorev. Hashem did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with those who are here today, all of us who are alive. Hashem spoke with you face to face on the mountain from the midst of the fire. I stood between Hashem and you at that time to declare to you the word of Hashem, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up to the mountain, saying, I stood between Hashem and you at that time to declare to you the word of Hashem, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up to the mountain, saying, I am Hashem, your Elohim, who brought you out of the land of Mitzrayim, out of the house of bondage. You have no other mighty ones against my face. You do not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of which is in the heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or which is in the waters under the earth. You do not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, Hashem, your Elohim, am a jealous El, visiting the crookedness of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing loving commitment to thousands, to those who love me and guard my commands. You do not bring the name of Hashem your Elohim to naught, for Hashem does not leave him unpunished, who brings his name to naught. Guard the Sabbath day to set it apart as Hashem your Elohim commanded you. Six days you labor and shall do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of Hashem your Elohim. You do not do any work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your ox, nor your donkey, nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, so that you may, so that your male servant and your female servant rest as you do. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Mitzrayim, and that Hashem your Elohim brought you out from there by a strong hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore Hashem your Elohim commanded you to perform the Sabbath day. Respect your father and your mother, as Hashem your Elohim has commanded you, so that your days are prolonged, and so that it is well with you on the soil which Hashem your Elohim is giving you. Do not murder. You do not commit adultery. You do not steal. You do not bear false witness against your neighbor. You do not covet your neighbor's wife, nor do you desire your neighbor's house, his field, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, his ox, nor his donkey, or whatever belongs to your neighbor. These words Hashem spoke These words Hashem spoke to all your assembly in the mountain, from the midst of the fire 
of the cloud and of the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And it came to be when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, See, Hashem our Elohim has shown us his honor and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. Today we have seen that Elohim speaks with man, and he lives. And now why should we die? For this great fire is consuming us. If we hear the voice of Hashem our Elohim any more, then we shall die. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living Elohim speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and does live? You go near and hear all that Hashem our Elohim says, and speak to us all that Hashem our Elohim says to you, and we shall hear and do it. And Hashem heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And Hashem said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you, and have done well in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them to fear me, and to guard all my commands always, so that it might be well with them and with their children forever. Go, say to them, return to your tents. But you, stand here by me, and let me speak to you all the commands and the laws and the right rulings which you are to teach them, and they shall do them in the land which I am giving them to possess. And you shall guard to do as Hashem your Elohim has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in the ways which Hashem your Elohim has commanded you, so that you live and it be well with you, and you shall prolong your days in the land which you possess. And this is the command, the laws, and the right rulings which Hashem your Elohim commanded to teach you to do in the land which you are passing over to possess, so that you fear Hashem your Elohim to guard all his laws and his commands which I commanded you, and that your sons and your grandsons all the days of your life, and that your days be prolonged. And you shall hear, O Israel, and shall guard to do, that it might be well with you, and that you are increased greatly, as Hashem Elohim of your fathers has spoken to you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael, hear the statutes and the judgments which are being spoken in your hearing, and you will learn them and guard them and do them. Now, when we usually encounter this word Shema, we as Westerners attempting to understand a foreign language, we choose how to interpret the word based on its context. Because this word is usually translated one of two different ways, either hear or obey. But neither is exactly correct. As we tend to do, we impose a range of meaning on this word, and we end up with extremes of possible meaning. Because this word does not mean hear, as in the sound coming into one's ears. This is a passive word, which our English allows for, but which Biblical Hebrew does not. Biblical Hebrew is an active language, and so every word has an active component to it. So Shema does not simply mean hear, as in sound waves entering into a person's ears, causing the eardrum to vibrate, which produces an electrical signal that's then transferred through our nervous system and translated by our brains. There is an action expected in response to what is heard. And so our usual response to this is to alternatively translate the word Shema as obey. But this swings too far to the other side of the spectrum as well, because there are things that we are told to Shema that we cannot do. It leads us to the concept of legalistic obedience to what is said and nothing more. Like a parent to a young child, just do what you are told. The translation of this word in this way changes the Torah from instruction into what we consider to be law. But there's another word in English that threads the needle that's created by these two extremes. 
A word that's not passive like our word hear and not legalistic like our word obey. I would submit that we could translate the word Shema as hearken. Now, this is a word that's fallen out of usage in our modern world, but it is a word that means to listen attentively and then to take to heart. It bears within it the idea of intent and action that's missing from here, but also softens the stern command of obey without question. And if we apply this understanding to the various usages throughout the Hebrew scriptures, we might find that this word fits much nicer in nearly every circumstance. And this helps us to make the mental leap necessary to understand biblical law as a whole. Now, chapter 5 of Deuteronomy contains a repeat of what is commonly called the Ten Commandments. But as I've touched on before, the Hebrew never uses the word command to describe what's recorded here. It is not the ten mitzvot, it's the ten words. Or is it the ten things? Well, as we examine these ten items on this list, we're discovered that the word hearken works so much better because one of these commands is no command at all, but rather it's simply a statement of fact. And that is the first of the ten commands. Now, various traditions have various ways of counting these ten items, but we do know that there are ten. But as we're going to see, as we continue through the pages of Deuteronomy, there is evidence in the text of Deuteronomy that the ten words are to be broken up in a particular way. Why do I say this? Because the opening to this portion of the Suzerain Vassal Treaty, the ten words recounted here, act as an index to what follows. That's right, what follows this chapter is not just a random collection of ideals that we are to follow, but they are an extrapolation of the initial ten words that we read here. And with this idea in mind of the ten words acting as an index, we can then accurately define the ten based on what comes after. And so as we open up chapters 6 through 11 of Deuteronomy, we find that these six chapters have one central topic that is derived from the first of the ten words, a statement of fact and not something that can be done. I am Hashem, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The next six chapters will explore this one verse and extrapolate it to describe just who Hashem is and the ways that he operates in relationship to his people, his covenants and promises, his provisions and reputation and more. And when we get into it, we're going to find, surprisingly enough, the gospel is contained in those six chapters. And so while this first command is not a command, but rather a statement of fact, the statement of fact that then leads to acceptance of the remainder of what Deuteronomy has to say. The first word is a declaration of our king and an acknowledgement that is needed to enter into the covenants of promise. And this helps us to better understand the word Shema as well. Because this is a statement of fact, then the word obey doesn't fit really well. Now sure, we can extrapolate the statements of fact into a concept of obedience, but why do this when the word hearken works better? Hearken. Pay close attention. Heed these words. Hashem is your God, and it is he that redeemed you from bondage. And from this initial idea flows the rest of what is presented in these ten words. The second word is, have no other gods before me. Do not create an image to bow down to, etc. And this word is expounded on in Deuteronomy chapter 12, which focuses solely on the idea of idolatry. 
And here in chapter 5, we find the idea of God's jealousy once again connected to the idea of bowing down to gods of wood and stone, which is directly following the idea of having another god that takes precedence over Hashem. And as we talked about last week here in the book of Deuteronomy, this jealousy takes on the cast of a king who is jealous of his rightful position of leadership and power. A position that is rightfully God's, but that is actively and constantly supplanted in the lives of his creation. And this command is extrapolated in chapter 12 of Deuteronomy in an examination of how this ideal plays out in the lives of men. The third command is then, do not bear the name of Hashem in vain. A command that has very little to do with how you speak his name, but one that is concerned more about being an accurate bearer of the image of Hashem into the world. And it is this ideal that is expounded on in Deuteronomy 13 and 14 with the discussion of false prophets, proper judgment, dietary restrictions, and care for the widow, poor, orphan, and Levite with tithes. Various ways of recognizing the proper image of God and then living that image out into the world. The fourth command then is the discussion of the Sabbath that's expounded on in 15 and most of 16 with the discussion of the Shemitah release, the release of debts, showing a mercy and kindness to the poor, a recounting of the pilgrimage festivals that occur throughout the year, which we have discussed before, and all are connected to the number seven, and which all contain days with no work. And we should take a moment to consider how the recounting of this word here in Deuteronomy is different from the fourth word in the book of Exodus. In Exodus, the fourth command is connected to the idea of creation. God created in six days and rested on the Sabbath, and now so should you. But here in Deuteronomy, we find that the Sabbath is directly connected to caring for the poor and the slave. And when it is expanded later in the book in these ideals that are highlighted in connection to the command. The fifth command is, honor your father and mother. Now, this command is approached from an interesting direction later in the book of Deuteronomy, as it takes on the cast of honoring all authority figures. It begins with the appointment and actions of judges in chapters 16 through 18, and the way that they are to carry out judgments. It then continues into the actions of kings, and then in chapter 18, the discussion turns to the priest and the Levite with discussions on what is to be permitted and what is not to be permitted in the actions of priests and Levites. No medium, sorcerers, necromancers, diviners, or any other. The priests of Hashem do not look like this. Then comes the prophecy of the one who will come to be like Moses, and then the discussion closes with another example of how to recognize a false prophet. Each of these positions being a position of authority and recognition of authority begins in the home with father and mother. And that closes the discussion of the first five words. Now, the second five words are presented in an interesting way that loses a little of the cohesiveness of the first five, because as we will find, the command to not steal is broken up, and a bit of this command is placed in each of the other four as Deuteronomy continues. And when we consider this, we discover that each of the other of these last four commands contains a bit of theft within them. What is murder, after all? other than stealing the life of another. Adultery? It's stealing the covenant partner of another, or stealing your promise of covenant from your partner. False witness? Stealing the truth or even the reputation that belongs to another. And envy? Well, that's, that's the thing that leads to theft in the first place. So let's go through these as Deuteronomy presents them and get a quick snapshot of just how these commands are expanded in this book. 
Do Not Murder begins in chapter 19 with the discussion of the manslayer, the unintentional killer of another person, and the chapter finishes with the usage of proper judgment and equal punishment for the offender. But in verse 14, for one quick verse, the idea of theft is approached with an admonition to not move a boundary line of your neighbors in an attempt to steal his land. Chapter 20 then continues the discussion with matters of battle. First, the men going to battle and who is to be allowed to choose to not participate in the battle. And then with how to approach a city when coming against it in battle. And then the first part of chapter 21 finishes the discussion with how to treat a death when the killer cannot be found. Then in verse 10 of Deuteronomy 21, the topic changes to adultery. And this topic begins with how to treat the women of a city that has been conquered how to continue to treat them as human beings and show them honor even in their state of shame and and loss and captivity. Then the topic shifts to the inheritance right of the firstborn over the favorite. The son who is defiantly disobedient, the idea in this being that the type of person will adulterate the people of Israel. And then how to treat the body of a person who has been publicly executed. In chapter 22, the discussion continues in verse 5 after a short aside about theft in the form of keeping lost items for yourself and as your own. And this discussion covers all sorts of adultery, including cross-dressing, the sowing of different kinds of seed, the mixing of wool and linen, and the difference between willful fornication and rape, and how to treat these cases when they're encountered. Then in chapter 23, we find that the topic of theft was skipped over, but not really and the topic of false witness is broached. And this discussion includes who is to be allowed to enter into the presence of God as priest, and who is allowed to enter into the community of Israel as a full member, how to act while out in the campaign in matters of uncleanness, the escaped slave lending with interest, keeping vows, and eating of a field while passing through but not harvesting. And then the discussion of false witness ends with the topic of divorce and remarriage. And when we consider each of these, we catch a glimpse of just how much this topic is about bearing witness about the character and nature of our God, as well as bearing witness about our own intentions or actions, let alone bearing witness against others. And then the law portion of the book finishes with a discussion on envy with such items as kidnapping, going into a man's house to retrieve a pledge, withholding wages from your laborers, how to reap your harvest while caring for the poor, muzzling an ox while it works, and leverite marriage, among others. And chapter 25 finishes this expansion of the ten words. And as we go through these chapters in upcoming months, we will go back through and examine each of these in more detail. But I hope that you can see that the ten words in chapter 5 truly do serve as an index of sorts for the rest of this portion of the Suzerain Vassal Treaty. And I hope that with this understanding, we can put to rest just how to number these ten words. And now that we have seen how this text is organized, and that organization lending itself to the idea of an ancient form of legal document, I'm going to somewhat disabuse you of that idea. I have in recent teachings referred to the section of Deuteronomy as the legal portion of the book, and I've referred to this book as a legal document. But I've only done that to help us to begin to understand and to categorize the book. But when we think legal and law, we must be careful not to impose our own modern understanding of what that means back on the text. Because ancient cultures did not understand law in the way that we do when we hear the word law. Now, I'm sure that most of you have heard about the so-called Law of Hammurabi, or Law Code of Hammurabi. It's a series of cases that were set out by Hammurabi to his vassals, several hundred years before the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. 
and in recent scholarship it's all the rage to compare the Torah to the Code of Hammurabi, and the reason for this arises from what I opened with. To understand how ancient peoples understood this topic of law, we need to examine the other literature in this genre that was part of that culture. And the Code of Hammurabi is the only other real legal type code that predated the Torah that we're aware of. But calling it a legal code is a bit of a misnomer, as this set of ideals is not a legal code as we conceive of legal code. For example, did you know that the Code of Hammurabi says nothing about what is to be done in the case of a murder? There's no discussion at all of how to treat the earthly, the early death of a person at the hands of another. Now, that seems rather lacking for something that we want to call a legal code, as our modern understanding of legal code would require that topic to be addressed. And here's where we begin to see the breakdown in our understanding. We have, in our modern minds, the thought that law is something that is prescriptive. It describes all situations and then gives a one-size-fits-all prescription for how to then handle these situations, flowcharting out all of the various ways that the situation could fall out. Ancient Mesopotamian cultures, including the Hebrew culture, did not operate in this way. This form of law arose with the Greeks around the rise of the Greek Empire around 400 BCE. Instead, ancient Mesopotamian cultures are understood to have had descriptive law codes. They describe a situation and then present a proper way of acting within that situation. Prescriptive law states that you must wear a seatbelt while operating a motor vehicle. If you are caught operating a motor vehicle by a representative of the law, then there is a punishment that can fall within a certain framework of fines and court appearances. Descriptive law simply states that it's a good idea to wear a seatbelt while operating a motor vehicle, and if you don't, then your actions could result in death of yourself or others. Prescriptive law attempts to flowchart every possibility of action and then create boundaries for how a person is supposed to act within those possibilities. Descriptive law presents a series of situations and then describes the best way to handle these situations according to the ideals of wisdom and justice. It's then upon the hearers and judges to determine the best way to act in response to the wisdom of the king that's been revealed in the law. And as we examine the text, we find that the Torah is not a prescriptive law. It is descriptive. Let's look at a couple of examples of this occurring right in the text. Exodus 21, 23-27 says, But if there is injury, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, lash for lash. And when a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he is to let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he is to let him go free for the sake of the tooth. In one verse, it says that the punishment for taking an eye is to have the eye taken, and the punishment for knocking out a tooth is to pay with a tooth. Prescriptive law says this is what happens and what is to always happen when these situations arise. But the very next verse then describes situations of a person losing an eye and a tooth, and the punishment is not what seems to be prescribed in the previous verses. The punishment is to be freedom instead of taking an eye or a tooth from the offender. 
The idea being here that the punishment is to fit the crime. And then the example given is various ways of implementing that ideal of the punishment fitting the crime. It's an example of how to execute justice that we are to reflect on and consider when we're faced with matters that require justice. Or how about this example? Leviticus 23.22 And when you reap the harvest of your land, do not completely reap the corners of your field when you reap, and do not gather any gleaning from your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am Hashem, your God. Now compare this to Deuteronomy 24.19 When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, do not go back and get it. But let it be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow, so that Hashem your God might bless you in all the work of your hands. Now in Leviticus it says, do not cut the corners of the field for the poor and stranger. But Deuteronomy says, do not completely clear your fields for the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. Now our prescriptive mind says that this means that we are to leave the corners and to leave sheaves behind. And then we're to have a gate checker guiding people to where their bit is. Are you an orphan or a widow? Well, we'd better not find you in the quarters. Those are for the poor. Were you poor? Well, we'd better not find you in the gleanings. Oh, wait, you're a stranger? Well, then help yourself to anything. We'd be stamping hands and assigning wristbands to make sure that no one crossed from one area to another because the law is clear on who is to benefit from each of these situations. But what's being described here is not prescriptive in this way. Instead, what is happening is that as situations are being described in connection to the harvest, and the idea that while we're harvesting, we're to go out of our way to find ways to take care of the vulnerable who are in our midst. Descriptive, not prescriptive. Do you see the difference? A descriptive law is not going to flowchart every possible situation for life. It's going to think of some obvious cases and describe how to act in these situations according to the ideals of justice and order as a baseline of action that we are to reflect on and then extrapolate from. We are to take the exercise of Deuteronomy and continue that practice. Here are ten ideals. Here are various ways that we can extrapolate those ten ideals. Now go out into the world and extrapolate in the same way using all of the wisdom of Scripture as your guide. And we know from the New Testament that both Yeshua and Paul saw the Torah in the same way. An example from Matthew 12, 1-8. At that time Yeshua went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not right to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not right for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or did you not read in the Torah that on the Sabbath the priests in the holy place profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the holy place. And if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not offering, you would not have condemned the blameless. For the Son of Man is master of the Sabbath. Now, while walking through the fields, the Pharisees approach Yeshua and they quote the Torah to him. They treat the Torah as prescriptive law. Do not work on the Sabbath. Your disciples are profaning the Sabbath, and we can turn to Exodus 31 and point out the section of legal code that pertains to what you are doing. And where did they learn this method of interpretation of understanding the law? 
from the Greeks who had conquered and ruled Israel during the time of Alexander and Antiochus Epiphanes. A way of thinking that was adopted as Hellenization began to make its way into Israel. But how does Yeshua respond? He doesn't respond with counter-legal code about caring for the hungry or the needy. Instead, he uses the narrative portions of the Bible to demonstrate that there are times where weightier matters of mercy and compassion trump exacting obedience. Because he understood the Torah was not prescriptive, but rather descriptive. It describes how to act in a world according to ideals of justice and mercy. It does not prescribe a one-size-fits-all way of acting. Or let's look at Paul. Throughout his letters, Paul leverages Torah ideals that are very specific and clear-cut and applies those ideals to situations that would not be allowed in a prescriptive legal code. An example of this can be found in 1 Corinthians 9, 9-11. For it has been written in the Torah of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned, or does he say it because of us all? For this was written because of us, that he who plows should plow in expectation, and the thresher in expectation of sharing. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap material goods from you? Now from a prescriptive legal perspective, then yes, it is oxen that God is concerned about. Or perhaps we can extrapolate this idea to other beasts of burden. But we could never extrapolate this law to people. That would be to add to the law if the law is prescriptive. Besides, aren't there other commands about withholding wages that could work just as well to make the point? But no, Paul uses this command. Not commands about tithing or leaving corners uncut or gleanings behind to make the point that a person who works for spiritual matters deserves some material reward for their work. Paul engages in the exercise of Deuteronomy by extrapolating a command that falls under the heading of envy and applying it to a situation that he was facing with a congregation that did not desire to share their goods with him or others who worked on their behalf. They desired to keep their goods for themselves, and this envy on the part of the Corinthians put Paul in a tight place financially. And this is the challenge that we are tasked with, marinating in, meditating on, and understanding the Torah in such a way that we can recognize and extrapolate the various commands to discover ways that we can apply them in our own lives. Because none of us puts fence around our roofs, but we should all be careful to protect the lives of those who live around us. We inherently understand in this case of putting a parapet around the roof that it is not the letter of the law that matters. But now comes the exercise to learn how to extrapolate these laws into our own lives, to know them and to understand them on such a deep and visceral level as to be able to recognize where we can apply them to our lives. And so let's bring this back around full circle. When I opened, I said that on the surface, it appears as though Deuteronomy is unique in the biblical canon, and some of you may have caught it. On the surface. Just under the surface, when we consider this portion of Deuteronomy and compare it and contrast it, there is another book that is very similar to Deuteronomy. And we catch a glimpse of that in the opening of this other book. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 8. My son, heed the discipline of your father and do not forsake the Torah of your mother. 
You might not spot it on the surface, but this verse has two words in it that help us to connect it to Deuteronomy. And this can help us to discover that the Torah is much closer to wisdom literature than it is to what we consider to be legal code. The first word of this verse in Hebrew is Shema. And this verse translates it as heed. I would again use the word hearken to translate this word, as this is what Proverbs is all about. Not prescriptive laws that describe how to act or even present accurate representations of how the world works. Rather, wisdom sayings that help us to understand and act in the ideals of wisdom, justice, and mercy. The second word used in this sentence is the word Torah. In most translations, this is translated as law, but Torah does not mean law as we think of it. Torah better means instructions, guidelines, wisdom principles that can help to guide your life and help you to live in a way that's beneficial to everyone. And we see this clearly throughout the book. Perhaps one of the most famous is found in chapter 26. Proverbs 26, 4-5 Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also become like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he become wise in his own eyes. Two verses back-to-back with seemingly contradictory statements. Do not answer a fool. Answer a fool. How do you keep this Torah? It is obviously not a prescriptive statement of action. Rather, it is wisdom that's being imparted to train us how to act when we face a person who is full of themselves. It's meant to get us thinking on how to recognize people like this and how to recognize situations in which a response is necessary and other situations when it's better to just walk away. They're words meant to get us to begin to practice discernment. Words words similar to Deuteronomy. Ideals that are to be learned as part of a whole, which can then be extrapolated and implemented in our lives to demonstrate wisdom. Not our wisdom, but the wisdom of our king. So if Deuteronomy is a suzerain vassal treaty and this book is an ancient legal document, but the legal portions are not prescriptive law that must be implemented in the vassal nation with policing forces to ensure absolute obedience, then what is the point of these legal portions of this document? And the answer to this is that these portions demonstrate the wisdom and justice of the suzerain king. These treaties do not legislate. Rather, they provide instruction on how to be a loyal vassal. Because a suzerain took vassals to increase their own fame and to glorify and lift up their own name. And so it was vitally important that the vassals then act in the manner of their suzerain, because the vassal was seen as an extension of the great king. The vassals were expected to reflect the character of the suzerain. And so these legal portions were present to describe the greatness of the suzerain and to provide concrete examples of his wisdom, justice, mercy, and love. They were presented to describe the suzerain to the vassal so that the vassal could act as a loyal extension of the suzerain. Deuteronomy 4, 5-8 through 8, See, I have taught you laws and judgments as Hashem my God commanded me to do thus in the land which you go to possess. And you shall guard and do them. For this is your wisdom and your understanding before the eyes of the people who hear all these laws and they shall say, 
Only a wise and understanding people is this great nation. For what great nation is there which has a God so near to it as Hashem our Elohim is to us, whenever we call on him? And what great nation is there that has such laws and righteous judgments like all this Torah which I set before you this day? As vassals of Hashem, this Torah truly is our wisdom. It is not our legislative work that prescribes a one-size-fits-all way of acting. It is our descriptive work that demonstrates our God and his wisdom, so that we can properly bear his image into the world, so that we can demonstrate his character to those outside of his kingdom. And this Torah is meant to be extrapolated and applied in our lives, not according to the letter and the exacting obedience, but through study and understanding of the various ways that this instruction can be applied. And Deuteronomy gives us the map. It begins with one command, love, which is then extrapolated into two commands, love God, love your neighbor, which is then extrapolated into ten commands, the ten words that are recorded here, which are then extrapolated into a whole series of ideals that run the gamut from interpersonal relationships to property ownership to the interaction of nation states in times of war to what is food and what is clothing. Every area of life is touched on because our whole lives are to be lived in the character of our king. And so as we study, we read, we discuss, and then we hearken to the words that are recorded. We attempt to gain wisdom and experience through this exercise so that we could live lives as he would have us live them. And in the end, we marinate in this text so that we don't fall short as we bear his name. So that we don't bear his name in vain, so that we can properly model his character into the world, because it is living in his image and according to his character that brings life to this world of death. So Deresh Chai, seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.